Zero is accounting software that has all the features small business owners need to run a business successfully. To help ensure business success, Zero also partners directly with accounting and bookkeeping firms, giving them a suite of tools and training to become Zero experts to help them and confidently advise businesses. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor Zero later in the episode. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where our criminals will eat time, but they probably won't eat your liver with fava beans and a nice Chianti. Hello, welcome. I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist, an erstwhile eater of time. <laughs> you know what, Caleb? I When I was billing my time, I don't believe I ever ate any time. I was very, for the one year. Oh, come on. No, no, no. Come on. For the one. Great. No. I, and that, no one listening, no one listening who is an accountant <laughs> believes you right now. You just need to, put, if, if you want to get out of a hole, Greg, no, you got to put no, down the shot. No, no, no. That's all I'm no, saying. No, no, no. That is, I'm absolutely for real on that. I was at a firm where I billed my time for exactly one year. And if I had, if I had known that that was an option, like I was just too dumb to realize that was something you could could do and so instead of that they were just always very upset with my billable uh you know like my utilization rate so so yeah so you didn't actually you know develop an eating disorder of time of time they kind of just berated you right. they bull- you were bullied well and none of my you know it's, it's a funny thing in, a, in an accounting firm i had a mentor but they never said hey listen so uh if you <laughs> If you're spending too much time on a tax return, just say that you spent less time on it. Nobody, nobody had that heart to heart with me, and I was uh, too naive to realize that that was a thing. Anyways, Caleb, you so as you said, you you were an erst, you're you are an erstwhile CPA, correct? And for dumb dumbs like me, because you said that a lot when we've done our webinars together, and yes, and I had you define what does erstwhile mean. Will you do that for our listeners today? Yes, it just means former. Yeah, so maybe you should just Formerly. say maybe just say former CPA in the future. You fucking egghead. Uh, <laughs> but but I'll consider it for you, Greg. I will consider. <laughs> I will consider. Right it. on. Okay, so where where and when did you get your accounting degree? I have two degrees. I my bachelor's uh, I got in Nebraska in two thousand two. And I got my master's of science in accounting okay. in 2003. Nice. Was it? Uh, was that also in Nebraska? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that was in Colorado. In Colorado. So, at, Colorado at, at Colorado State. Colorado State. And then the other one was at uh, University of Nebraska? Nebraska at Kearney, yes. University of Nebraska at Kearney. No one knows what that yep. means because no one's ever been to Nebraska. Most most people. And, and so I, I got my yeah. I got my ba- well actually to give my full uh, curriculum vitae, I have a, a bachelor of arts in mathematics because as everyone knows, mathematics is not a science. It's an it's an art. You just feel your way through that. Uh, I feel like X equals two point five. And then is that a math joke? Is that a math joke? No, that's just that's a joke for everybody. Oh. Then I and then I got a uh, I was a teacher. I used to be a, a junior high math teacher for about ten years, and I hated it. So I went back to school. I got my bachelor of science in accounting, and then I got my I got an MBA with an accounting emphasis. So I got my bachelor's in accounting from Utah Valley State College, and I got my MBA from Utah State University. But here, here's one thing I remember from all of my accounting classes, whether it was undergraduate or graduate classes, a- any of the classes that I took when they covered fraud, especially like early yeah. ones, we'd get into the section about fraud and they would start explaining some type of fraud scheme. And I would be like, oh my God, that is a brilliant way to steal money. I would have never thought to steal money in that way. But now I know that it's possible to steal money. I felt like we were being trained to be able to commit fraud. Did you ever have any experience along that same line? 
Um, no. Uh, <laughs> I no. was trying to think about no, not really. I mean, I was trying to. I was, I was trying to remember. Like, it's certainly not from college college classes. I I just feel like whenever fraud came up, I don't know why, but I feel like kiting schemes were very played up. They had kind of this uh, oversized importance. Huh in my in my college whenever fraud came up for some reason the fact that it it looms so large in my in my memory is is weird right i don't know why right but but anyway. but here's the thing so i i've all yeah. i've always thought it's weird that we as cpas have hmm. been like literally we've been trained how to how to detect fraud but the only way you can be trained on how to detect it is you are also trained on how it's perpetrated so therefore you're trained yes we we are expertly trained in fraud and it's even funny like one of the one of the internal controls that companies could and should use is fraud training which doesn't mean hey we're going to teach you how to steal money from our company what it more means is it means like what here's the things if you didn't realize it this is fraud like uh you know and i think that more comes into play with things like like corruption sort of mm. schemes where it's like yeah you can't take a you can't take a trip to Tahiti from our vendor uh, because then you're going to be obligated to that vendor even if they have crappy products or higher prices so stuff like that is important for fraud training but we've literally had fraud training where we are taught how to commit these frauds and we're in this position of trust as accountants where we really can get in and steal a lot of stuff, but you rarely ever steal, hear stories about accountants who have committed frauds, especially like embezzlement kind of frauds. Obviously, you know, we know Arthur Anderson was involved in the Enron scandal, but they didn't perpetrate it. They just overlooked it. But in terms of- I don't know, Greg. I don't know, Greg. I think I spent at least a third of my time at Going Concern writing about accountants perpetrating frauds. Perpetrating frauds? Perpetrating frauds. Name some for me. What? What do you want me to do? Dig them out of the archives? Like, I mean, like, I, it's not in the. It's not within the scope of this podcast. Okay, I would be happy to dig. <laughs> right. I, mean, I didn't. Happy. I didn't give you that. I didn't give you that homework for today's. No, topic. I didn't. That was right. not my homework for right. this podcast. Well, but, but no. But, but I mean. I can, there's countless stories of, of accountants <laughs> that were that were ripping off. They were either ripping off clients or they were they were. Uh, it, I mean, we're going to get today's example, but like, yeah. look, if you need some if you need some accountant fraud stories, let me just dig go through some going concern archives, and I'd okay. be glad to send you. some. Cool. Well, I, well, I love that, and and I, I didn't really, mean to blow, I didn't mean to blow up your whole theory. No, here, I like, and I didn't get defensive at all when you brought that up because that's my whole like. That's my my whole uh, like angle for this entire podcast is oh my gosh accountants don't ever commit fraud and you're like all the time it's like well that's our episode of oh my fraud we'll see you next time enjoy not getting any CPE for this one because Caleb just shot me in the back <laughs> Caleb Caleb debunked Greg and we don't have right. a podcast now. but you, but you didn't and and you're we're right. still uh, friends at least we'll carry on we're yeah. gonna carry on. Right with the, with our friendship and right. this podcast. Okay, so uh, so here's the thing: one way or another, regardless of how frequent it is that CPAs commit fraud, because they they it's rare in my world. Uh, and doing all the fraud teaching that I've done, the big cases are never about CPAs. You know, they're colluding at best. I haven't seen a lot. So. On today's podcast, regardless of your beliefs, we're not just going to look at a CPA who stole like a shit ton of money. We're going to look at a managing partner of a CPA firm who stole a shit ton of money. And even better, this guy was a certified fraud examiner. So, Greg. This is an interesting story. A managing partner of a CPA firm who perpetrated a fraud against his own firm. This is this is good. We don't hear about you are right about this. This is this is I think this is a pretty unique case. So uh set <laughs> well, the state. Well, good. Good. Yeah. Th thanks yeah. for being on my side. I've 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 I've, I've come around to it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So anyway, uh, uh set us up. Like what give us give us the lay of the land on this particular fraud. Okay. So first off, 
this fraud was perpetrated in the land of Hawaii. So in, in Hawaii, there was a gentleman named Patrick Oki, who was the managing partner of a firm called PKF Pacific Hawaii LLP. And PFK, interestingly enough, PFK what had been listed as one of the best places to work, probably because if you work there, you can steal a bunch of money from the firm. It's a perk that they. It's a uh, rare. It's a rare perk. Yeah, it's a rare perk. So, Greg, what yes. else do we know about? What do we know? What else do we know about Patrick Oki? <laughs> Surprisingly little, Caleb. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Which, which again, and we're going to get to this because I think there's reasons why we know surprisingly little about this guy. The few things that we know about him just personally is that he was the, it's all about his college stuff. He was the president of the University of Hawaii Alumni Association. He just today, like shortly before we got on to record this podcast, I went on LinkedIn just to see if he happened to have a LinkedIn profile that still is up. And he does. Oh. And, and here's the one fact about Patrick Oki that I found on his LinkedIn profile is that he was on the marching band at the University of Hawaii because oh. you can never trust a flautist. That's Oh, he played the flute, huh? No, I didn't say what he oh, played. I'm okay. just I I'm I'm connecting some dots that oh. I don't don't really know. So this well but but it does definitely if you're a CPA and you're in the marching band, you're doubling down on on your nerd cred yeah. in two very distinct nerd areas and and the interesting thing is those two nerd areas both help establish more of your of like a sense of credibility because really I would if someone was like part of a marching band for some reason I go this guy is good he's not going to steal anything I don't know why that's just my my take on a marching band volunteerism being a, a president a, a volunteer president for an alumni association that yep. also is something that create any volunteerism that you do is going to create an appearance of trustworthiness and we've looked at it in the past with the mutual benefits company they similar to it they donated a bunch of money to charity and when you do right. that also helps build this appearance of trustworthiness. Yeah, and who would volunteer for that job? I mean, oof. yeah, he must have no had thanks. a lot of a lot of rainbow warrior pride is what Did he, he did he have to like send out all the letters? I mean, I don't know. Uh, gosh, I, I hope not. I yeah. It sounds pretty about. sounds pretty pretty miserable. So, <laughs> all yeah. right. So, Greg, should we get into the fraud? I'm curious. Yes. Well, I know what happened, yeah. but yeah. but I I know our our rabid listeners are <laughs> they are they're wrapped with attention right now. So. Yes. Yeah. So here's what he did to okay. steal. He stole. I, I mean, just not to bury any leads here. The guy stole four hundred and forty thousand dollars from his firm, from PKF Hawaii Pacific Hawaii. Yep. He stole the money from his own firm through a false reimbursement claims scheme. So he he claimed to personally incur a bunch of expenses that he said were related to client work, but they weren't really, they were just false. Uh, all of it was fake. He was just yeah. saying he spent the money on this client work. He'd get the money and then he'd use, you know, with the reimbursed money, he'd do whatever he wanted to do with it. And he did it. This is pretty impressive. He started doing it in 2011. This is according to the official records. So that's at least the first time they could identify a time that he did. It was in 2011. And then he was discovered in 2014. So the guy at most, so if he started it on January 1st of 2011 and got caught on December 31st of 2014, that would be exactly four years that he that he stole $440,000. Likely, he, it was closer to three years that this uh, that this went on. So he mm -hmm. was he was stealing, you know, about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year from his firm through uh, false reimbursement claims, which to me, that's that's a whole lot of photocopies you're making. That's a whole lot of postage that you're that you're paying out of your own pocket. Yeah, for the firm. I mean I, it sounds to me as like, if you're the managing partner, I mean, you're probably a pretty busy person, right? And as we've kind of established, keeping frauds going is kind of a full-time job. So if this guy was busy being the managing partner of a firm during this time, and then he's also carrying on, you know, 
creating fictitious people, companies, contracts, right, forms, invoices, and all this stuff to the extent that it fools his partners because you assume these other partners are, you know, they're they're relatively bright folk, I right. imagine, that he probably had to work pretty hard to fool them. I mean, that sounds exhausting. You know? Right, right. <laughs> another <laughs> another exhausting fraud scheme. Another to- exhausting totally. fraud scheme. Totally, because that. So again, in the research, you, you you enumerated a lot of it. He created yeah. fictitious people, fictitious companies. Which again, on that that might be easy to do. You just put you make up a name and you throw it on an invoice. He made up. And if fictitious- you're the managing partner, who's who's like, is anyone in your firm like, is who's checking your work? But but maybe they're. That's the whole thing. Maybe yeah. they're not. Listen, here's a here's a here's a crazy personal story that I think relates to. It might be an overshare, but let me get into it anyways, Caleb. Yeah. Uh, get into so it. so I so I am a I am a uh, I'm a divorced man. And, okay. and when my, as my marriage crumbled, uh, before me, uh, one of the things that came up was, uh, that this was like, yeah, my, my ex right at the, right at the goal line, we were ready to get married. She's like, Hey, it was like, we had given up. And then a week later, she's like, wait a second. There's some stuff that we need to talk about because I, you know, cause I, I just didn't, I didn't bring it up. And she's like, one of the things I didn't tell you is I started our marriage with $10,000 of debt that I had through a debt re- that I put in a debt reconsolidation company. And I never told you about it. And I paid it off by getting extra cash. Every time I went to like getting cash back, every time I went to the grocery store uh-huh. and, and so $40 at a time paid off $10,000 worth of debt over who knows how many years of our marriage. And right. I'm, I'm a CPA and I had no damn clue she was doing it because guess what? I wasn't checking her receipts. I was going, she spent the money at the grocery store. It must've been on groceries. I got to assume it was the same thing for these partners who go, this is our managing partner. He's cool. We're not going to spend a bunch of time, a bunch of non-billable time checking his receipts. Right. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Zero. If you love listening to this podcast, you've learned that systems and processes could have prevented many of the frauds we've discussed. Having an accounting system like Zero can help a business create the processes it needs so that it can avoid becoming a future Oh My Fraud episode. Zero lets you set up multiple users, each with their own login and password, so you can accurately assign the proper access to each user. When it comes to accounts payable, Zero pushes all bills through a built-in approval process. Zero's expense management tools ensure that employees only get reimbursed for approved expenses. And because Zero connects directly to banks, you can reconcile and match transactions daily to ensure that any money coming and leaving the bank accounts is what you expected. To become a Zero partner and gain access to free tools, benefits, and rewards for your practice, head over to ohmyfraud.promo/zero. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash X-E-R-O. So he must have been doing a good enough job as a managing partner that his fellow partners like, yeah, Patrick's on top of this. Yeah, like they, they had they had no reason to suspect him whatsoever. If I understand it, I see. And that again, in terms of trying to, to fill in the details that we don't have access to, uh, because again, he's still, he's stealing $150,000 a year between a hundred and $150,000. Well, I guess between 110 and $150,000 a year from his company through reimbursement. I would assume that that stuff would be made public and the partners could see that. Yeah. And again, he's and he's doing all this, you know, he's creating he's even creating contracts and IRS forms, which I assume is maybe 1099s, uh yep. in invoices, finance. He created f- fake websites and fake email addresses. That's a lot Ugh. of work this guy's it's going to. So I think I think his hard work to steal his hundred and forty thousand dollars was in an attempt to show his partners no, this is legit. But as a partner, I'd still go, but is it? That's even if it's legit expenses, you're maybe be you're, you maybe need to rein that in is a, a great idea. Yeah, I mean, possibly it it could, you know, depending on the scale of the firm and like what kind of business they do, it it could be unreasonable, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's what you're saying. 
Yeah, that's true. And I guess that's something that I don't, I've never had a job where I have an expense account. That's yeah, never, either. so I don't, maybe $150,000 a year in reimbursements is normal for some people in some firms. And I'm sure it probably is, but you I know, mean, I don't, I don't know. And if, and yeah. the other thing is if he's, if he's a managing partner, probably a lot of his duties are, is to go get new clients. So maybe a lot of it was like fake reimbursements for going that, that would be, if I was in his shoes and if I was responsible for bringing in new clients, I would make a ton of reimbursements for taking clients out to high end restaurants where we spend a lot on booze and then go, sorry guys, they decided to go with I'd Bailey Hawaii instead of us. Dang it. I, we were so close, but I got another, I got another dinner tonight and I'm going to (laughs) spend another two thousand dollars on it and maybe we'll get these guys so kobe burger i had another kobe burger (laughs) exactly right exactly so yeah so so it's hard it's hard to know but in some of the in in the research that i looked into there was a quote from one of his former partners that he defrauded where they said when they would confront him about the fraud which i don't know if that was like we found these suspicious things what's going on it said that he would turn it around on them to eventually go. I think you're stealing from the company. Hey, <laughs> hey, that's don't tell me that I'm stealing from you. You're the one stealing from me. So I know you are, but what am I? I know you yeah, are, but what am I? Yeah. I know you are, but what am I? Good, good defense. Good defense, so, Pat Oakey. I wanna I wanna come back to something that is kind of important, mm-hmm. Greg. And the fact that Patrick Oakey was a certified fraud examiner. Yes. So this guy, obviously, well, not obviously, but again, we have to kind of put this together. He was at least to a, in the sense that he, he did the work to get a certification. I don't, we, we don't know anything about the work that he normally did, but you have to assume that he did things that were forensic in nature and investigated frauds and stuff like that. He was in, as you pointed out earlier, he was in a good position to perpetrate something about as well as a person could. Yeah. And if his partners, because we don't know much about his partners either, do we? We don't. Yeah. And so like if they're, I mean, they, he may have just looked at the situation and said, well, well, you know, before I speculate, let's get into the motive for a little bit, because there seems to be there, there seems that's something that we kind of have a sense of, right? Is the motive like what, like why? I mean, he's the managing partner. He's making a good living. Like he's living in Hawaii. Why does dude need a hundred, uh, another hundred and ten to one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year? Well, it's not. Maybe you have information that I don't. The only thing no. I have that points to a motive is that he was living a lifestyle far above what would be expected, even for someone who's a managing partner of a big firm in Hawaii, that it's even with that. He, but, but that was, that was the extent of the description. They weren't like going, he had a different Rolex for every day of the month. And he had, he had, (laughs) he had spinning rims on his cars. that matched the Rolex of the day of the month that he would wear the, they didn't say anything like that. But what what do you what do you have for motivation? Well, no, other no, no, than no. Just maybe greed. Maybe I over maybe I oversold it a little bit. Like, but I thought his his defense was that oh he was entitled to the reimbursements, right? right? Yeah, yeah. So the rash the rationalization and yeah, but but that's the thing. I don't think that that was. I don't think that was a legitimate rationalization. I think that that was okay. So. So for those of you who didn't do all the research, Caleb and I did this. Patrick Oakey is on the stand in court in Hawaii, which, by the way, just a quick observation about that, Caleb. When I saw some of the videos of his testimony, did you notice that there was an alarming number of people in a formal setting of a courtroom hearing that were wearing uh, Hawaiian shirts? Did you notice this? I, I did, and it seemed pretty on brand for Hawaii, it, it even did. in a, even in a court, it, even in the court of yeah, law. See, I don't know. For me, I'm like going, "What is that? Okay, can you in that state? It's like you could in Hawaii." I guess. Wait, was the judge was the judge wearing a Hawaiian robe? Because I, I mean, if he was wearing a Hawaiian robe, <laughs> then we know it's fine. A Hawaiian. Ro- I I don't know if it was HD enough to catch the pattern on the uh, 
the the judge's robe. But I was like, going, it must be okay to wear a Hawaiian shirt to court as long as it's your good Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> then you, that's that's the best I get. But but also going back to what we said before, uh, Hawaii is a goddamn paradise. If you can. For so many reasons, not just the the beauty of nature, but also the fact that you can wear a Hawaiian shirt when you're when you're going to jail in court. You'd be totally chill in a court of law when you're probably (laughs) looking at hard time. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going to jail for twenty years. Be comfortable. Cool. Might as well be comfortable. But we're but we're all wearing these shirts, right? So yeah, Um, let's be comfortable. Let's be comfortable. So in hindsight, I think his defense of what he did because he definitely took. $440,000 that he was not entitled to from the firm. But what he was trying to say in court is he says, no, wait, I'm an owner of this company. So I didn't steal money. I was just taking money from me out of the firm. And and it's like, you can't steal from yourself, so you can't prosecute me. So therefore, I'm innocent. Right, Judge? See you later. I'm going to take my flip-flops, my good (laughs) flip-flops that I'm wearing. I'm going to get, I'm going to, you can't moonwalk in flip-flops, but that, I mean, he's going to moonwalk out of there. So maybe he's wearing real shoes. I don't know. I mean, it kind of sounds like a legal theory that would come from Lionel Hutz. I got to be honest. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of those things where you're like, that's not right. You no. can say that, but that's not right. <laughs> not not at all. And okay. And, and right. so so with that though, let's talk about that. So he he so with his sentence, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. He was okay. for the for the crimes of theft, money laundering and computer crimes and forgery. So those were the oh. ones that he did. Theft, yeah, money laundering. Because he forged, he forged the signatures of these fictitious people that he created. Right, which yeah. breaks my brain because <laughs> how can you forge a signature that doesn't a, exist? Right. It's like somebody's going, somebody's going, this is not the signature of Harry Potter. I have I have read uh magical beasts and where they come from, and this is not Harry Potter's signature. Damn it! So yeah, I don't know how you forge a fake person's signature, but that's how good he was at crime is he did it even though it's impossible. But yeah, so he so he was 20 years for that. He Ooh, was and he was ordered years. 20 years and okay. he was ordered Ooh. to pay the $440,000 in restitution, but his argument held at least a little bit of weight because he as there, there weren't a ton of partners from what I gathered in this mm-hmm. firm. And so if he stole four, let's say there was a total of five partners in this firm and he stole $440,000 from the firm. That means that he actually stole four fifths of $440,000 because the one fifth would actually belong to him. So he's kind of right in that he was some of the money he stole was money he stole from himself, but it was a small fraction it, or at least right. a fraction. Four-fifths four, four of it is still fraud. Right, exactly. So it's 80% like you, of it is still you fraud. You still stole money from other people. And then, yeah. and, and the way my brain started to go, it's like, well, wait a second. Well, maybe they could go back and say, well, all that $440,000 should just be taken against his equity in the firm, and then it's not stealing. But that's not true because that's not how it was booked because it was right. booked as it was coming out of the whole firm. So. Yeah, in hindsight, maybe you could have done some journal entries to make it so, okay, the money you stole was was just your money, but and maybe that's part of the logic of what he was trying to get to is it's like I had more than four hundred forty thousand dollars of equity in the firm, so just take it all against me and we're good, right, guys? We're cool then, right? We can just go back to working together. No big deal. <laughs> we still got a business, right? We're, right? we're cool. We're cool. But I mean I, but it, but even though but like I don't you you listed off the crimes that he was charged with or convicted of. I maybe I didn't convicted. Those were what he was Con- convicted of. Ooh, boy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but even even the stuff like, but even the creation of of like, I mean, if he forged, if he if he created fake IRS forms, that mm-hmm. is definitely a crime that you're not going to get out of. Right. right? And yeah. so so he can he and, let, and I'm no lawyer, obviously, but like he can claim all day that he's like, oh, this is going against my my partnership basis and da, 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 da. he can, he can argue that all day until he's blue in the face. But the fact of the matter is he created false and misleading documents, including federal forms. And there's no way to explain that away. As far right. As I can tell. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, 
We have never yet touched on the concept of scienter in this podcast mm, yet, but that's right? one of the things. If you're going to be convicted of fraud, they must prove scienter, which is one of the core beliefs of Scientology. That's where it gets its name, uh, where there must be fraudulent intent because the Church of Scientology was built on fraudulent intent. Were you aware of that as the root of that word? Um, I, I believe I was and, um, it's, 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 I, yeah, no, I pulled that out of my butt. Oh, really? Okay. Cause I was hoping, you know, I'm looking forward to the hate mail that's kind of come for that. Right. Right. And and potentially a cease and desist letter from the church of science. That would be, man, I can't wait for our first cease and desist letter. I'm excited. Yeah. So Greg, how did this whole thing wrap up? I know there's like, was there anything? So, so did, were the partners made whole anyway? Did they, did they, did they just get? vengeance in the in the court of uh, court of law like how what how did this whole tie up how this whole thing tie up so the media seemed to get bored with this case after he was after he was sentenced because because yeah he was he was uh he was ordered to pay the four hundred forty thousand dollars back but they delayed the reimbursement demand until they could figure out uh who the who the money was supposed to go to because because of the complexities that we just said, part of he right. in part he was stealing from himself. But four former partners uh, requested that the judge just give the money back to the firm, so that the firm could distribute all of the money to the to the partners who were not Oki. And basically, is saying he this guy that's part of his punishment is he just has to pay all the money back and he doesn't get any of it distributed out to himself as a partner of the firm. The firm was then dissolved because I, I got to assume it's similar again, at least in the same ballpark as like an Arthur Anderson. When a scandal like that happens, none of your clients are going to have any faith in your firm anymore. Right. If, if the managing partner stole money from the firm, probably every client is going. So how much money did he steal from me? And <laughs> right. So with that, yeah, they shut down PFK Pacific Hawaii, and in its place, there was a new firm called Spire Hawaii LLP that basically that basically was the old firm just with a new name and a new EIN, and that's that's how they went forward there. Everything's better. Everything's fine at that point. So uh, that's it. And he did he he got taken to prison immediately from the from from jail. And uh, according to, again, some of the video that I saw of the penitentiary where he was set is, yes, it is a penitentiary, but it is still a penitentiary in Hawaii. And the surroundings were gorgeous. The buildings <laughs> were like were like World War II uh, uh, bunkers, but they were World War II bunkers that were set in the most magical place on Earth. So, yeah. Well, so. That's, that's how a, that's, that's how it that's, that's a sil- that's a silver lining. Yeah. And so, all right. A well, silver, a silver lining for Patrick Oki. Yeah. Oh, oh, one last one last fun fact. Uh he yeah. tried to okay. appeal. He tried so so like I said all that went down in 2014. Um he did try to appeal the uh the sentence but the the Supreme Court of Hawaii denied his appeal in 2020. So just recently it just came back up and they said nope. So he is still in the, the Hawaii State Penitentiary for his crimes uh, against his firm. Huh. I wonder if they wear Hawaiian shirts in the prisons. Well, you know, I, I'm i going to say, yeah, it's still going to be Hawaiian shirts. Yeah. Just with, just, I mean, the, the, that style, but they still yeah. have the, 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 jumpsuit, the, the, the jumpsuits with the with the, the, the floral patterns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and flip flops. Right. I think they have shower shoes there for everybody. Yeah, so. yeah, 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 of course. So, Greg, have we learned anything today? I don't know if we have, but but I mean, there's there's some lessons here. So, what are, what what are some lessons that come to mind? Well, I I think I mean the first lesson that I think is clear from this case is just because you're at a CPA firm, don't think that your firm is immune to fraud. People, because I think, and, and that even goes back to kind of what you said when we got into into the case, was that this case is, seems to be unique because it's actually a CPA who's stealing money from the firm, and that's not something that we typically see. So, so the big thing is don't 
don't feel like you have some sort of, you know, magic protection around you just because you're a CPA firm. You just like every the, the ACFE, they estimate that every organization loses 5% of their revenue to fraud. And that's yeah. every organization including accounting firms. So right. people steal shit and they're going to steal shit even from a CPA firm. So I think that's 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 one of the biggest lessons that I come away with. But some of the other stuff that that came to my mind really just wraps back around to some of what I feel are the most interesting statistics that we see coming out of the ACFE about frauds. And one of the the, the first one that came to mind obviously cuz Patrick Oki was the managing partner of the firm, uh the ACFE reports that tw- this was from the 2020 report to the nations that the ACFE puts out every two years. In that report to the nation, they said that 20% of frauds are committed by owners or executives compared to 41% that were perpetrated by employees and 35% that were perpetrated by management. Those numbers don't add up to to 100. That's because they have some other category, which I don't even know what you'd be if you weren't an owner, an employee, or a manager. But apparently there's some people that fit that. But first off, one of the first thing that comes to mind about those stats, Caleb, is the way and, – and again, it's one of the almost misleading ways that the ACFE presents their data because they go, well, it's most likely – if a fraud happened at your company, it's most likely that an employee did it because 41% of the frauds are committed by employees, right? But I feel like it's it's flipped around because 20% – if you look at the, all the people at your firm or, or at any given company – 20% of the people are not owners or executives. It's probably like 1% or less yes. that are owners or executives. So that right. 1% of people is committing 20% of the frauds. That's huge. That's way yeah. disproportionate. So yeah. I agree. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I think, like I said, is not, and it's not obviously, it's not like the ACFE is trying to be misleading, but a lot of these stats, I feel like if you think of them that way, or if even if you flip them around, you're going to, you're going to see even a more interesting statistic because in here, it's actually, oh my God. And the same thing, 35% of your company is not management. If 35% of your company is management, your company is going to go broke because you have too many damn managers. Yeah. So it's the same thing where we're managed compared to the percentage of a, of a typical company that is management, management's doing an out outsized yeah, percentage it, of the fraud. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and even you take it to the final you know, the final component, which is, you know, if you figure 90% of the people in a company are, are employees mm-hmm. and they're only committing 41% of the frauds, right. you're at, actually, you're, you're like, oh, that's actually not very many. Right. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. So, so the 20, I agree with you, the 20% of frauds by the 1%, mm-hmm. you know, people who occupy 1% of those positions is, is that is quite high. That yeah. strikes me as quite high. And again, it makes sense because if you're an owner or an executive, I mean, kind of like what we saw with with Patrick Oakey, you're in a position of trust, you're in a position of authority, yep. so you can you can get away with this stuff. The other thing that comes up all the time is the higher up you are in a company, the more you have greater ability to circumvent internal controls, so that you know you can override the internal controls that are there to prevent people from stealing stuff or from you know doing financial statement fraud. Uh, and so if you can circ- if you can override those controls, obviously you've got there's more opportunity if we're getting talking fraud triangle stuff, more opportunity for you to do this. But one of the things that that I remember thinking about also when I looked at that statistic is like what it means for an owner to commit a fraud because of exactly what Patrick Oakey said in court, where it's like I was stealing from myself. But I think this case very much cleared that. That was a learning thing for me of going, oh, yeah, of course, an owner, if they're not the sole proprietor, they're not the only owner of the company. If they steal, they're stealing from the other owner. So I thought that was a good a good lesson that came from this uh, from this case. So that was one thing. Cool. Yeah. What else you got? There's, well, here, here's where I think it gets some of this fraud stuff gets nuts for me when you start looking at the percentage of cases that were actually referred to law enforcement in some way or another. And again, the ACFE reports that 59% of cases get reported to law enforcement. So, so only about you know three out of five cases 
end up getting reported to law enforcement, which again is so counterintuitive because if somebody lost tons, if, if you had tens of thousands of dollars stolen, why aren't you sending people to jail for that? Right. And so, uh, and, and with that, so, so even with the two thirds, well, forget about just going to jail, just like reporting it to the authorities. Like, right. We're not even talking about like a trial and, and, a, and, and a verdict or anything. You're just like that the authorities are even notified. Right. And with that, I mean, we see that about one in seven of the cases that are referred to law enforcement, either they were they were declined prosecution. They're just like, we're not going to pursue this guy or yep. they were prosecuted and then acquitted. So you've got so so even of the ones that go that go to law enforcement, there's a certain percentage that that fall through the cracks. And, and hopefully right. rightly so. Maybe, you know, yep. that, that that's those are the people who didn't really do the stuff. But. The the other thing that comes up too is that is that so it's fifty nine percent of the cases that were looked at by the ACFE. Those cases are cases where a company hired a certified fraud examiner to look into their fraud. So if you don't hire a fraud examiner, you're not going to be in the study. Right. But also, if you don't hire a fraud examiner. I'm going to say you're even less likely to report your fraud to the authorities. Don't don't you think? What what yeah, are your I mean, thoughts about that? I mean, that strikes me as perfectly reasonable. I mean, I think, you know, one thing one question that you have here is what's the motivation to not report something to to law enforcement? And right. I think for for many businesses, they want to either handle it themselves. Right. And whatever that means, it may it mean it may mean nothing, or mm -hmm. it means just letting them get away with it and they fire that person, right? Or it mean or or they're too embarrassed, like for whatever reason, because they got taken for a ride. You know, they got hoodwinked. A absolutely. The the embarrassment of that and the publicity that could come along with it, people don't want to have to reckon with that. Right. And so they're just like, yeah, it's only money, you know, <laughs> it's just, they, and they're, just, and like you say, the, the person, there's no accountability and, uh, the person probably moves on to, uh, maybe rip someone else off. Right. Everything that you just said, I a hundred percent agree with it, but then even think like the embarrassment side of stuff, think mm. about how much that's ramped up. If it's an accounting firm yes. that gets, oh, yeah. that gets taken because that's why I think we see so few accounting firms who get where there's an embezzlement at an accounting firm yep. where that's publicized at all. And I also think that's the reason why so many of the facts of this case are so hard to find. Our research was difficult getting into the nitty gritty on this case because I think the, I think the accounting firm was like, we have to take this to law enforcement because it's too big of a deal. Right. But then they're also like, but we're only going to say exactly as much as we need to to get this guy to to go to jail and right. apart from that we're gonna tight-lipped we're not even gonna say anything at all and we're just gonna shut it down not answer any questions that we don't have to so uh so yeah there's definitely the embarrassment side because again if i was one of the other partners maybe maybe they all had cfes who knows who the other partners were because if the other partners also were certified fraud examiners and they had a fraud perpetrated against them how ridiculously embarrassing would that yeah. be so, not a good look. Plus, not a good look. Like we said, PKF uh, Pacific Hawaii, they had to close their doors. That's not yep. an easy. Even if they did, you know, reemerge as a phoenix of squire, whatever, <laughs> swir swirl, whatever they came back. Spire Hawaii. Spire Hawaii. That's what it was. They, uh, uh, you know, that's still a giant pain in the ass. And if you just kept yep. hush hush and didn't do anything, then. PKF may well have still been a firm that was still happening and they just would be like, yeah, our managing partner, he had to retire. And that's, that's, the, a, that's the so, story you tell the clients. So one other thing that I think applies to both questions, which is why do companies and why do CPA firms? I think something that applies to both is that if this is, yeah, and, and you're, you're touching on it, so maybe I'm just taking it to the next logical place, but not only is it embarrassing, but I think there's a very good chance that you you just lose business as a result of this thing, right? Absolutely. And so, like, if you're a business where someone where an owner perpetrates a fraud, whether it's a hardware store or whether it's a CPA firm, 
people are probably going to think twice about doing business with you because they think that, well, my money's going to be stolen by a person. I want it to actually, I want, I want the, the proprietors of the business to get the money, or I want that money to go to the employees of the business, or I want them to be able to expand yeah. their business or whatever the case may be. Like if it's somebody's just lining their pockets with the money that we're spending, why would they patronize that business. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And so, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of reasons why people or why a business would not right. report a fraud. But I still think the, you know, the whole fact that 41% of the, the cases in the ACFE study were not, re- I mean, that isn't a, that is a remarkable, yeah, that's a pretty remarkable stat. Absolutely. So, so la- the last yeah. uh, stat that I want to look at again, coming from the ACFE is that and this this blows my mind. So they they say that 80% of fraudsters receive some kind of internal punishment. But again, so you go, oh, so the vast majority of them receive internal punishment. But the, the to me, the headline is the flip that around. 20% mm. of fraudsters receive zero internal punishment within the company that they stole money from. One in five people that commits a fraud isn't even punished by the company in which they committed the fraud. That's that is mind blowing that it's that much like to the point where I I have a hard time even believing that's that statistic. What's uh, do you have the same reaction? Yeah. I mean, maybe it lacks some context. I don't really know, but, but I agree with you. The fact that one in five would receive no internal punishment at all. It seems extremely, extremely high. Right. And then, but then the ACFE goes further and they drill down on some of this data and they disaggregate it for the different level, like again, for the employees, the managers versus the owners and executives. Only 45% of owners or executives are terminated for committing a fraud. So it's not that they, they may have had some other kind of internal punishment, but the punishment wasn't, we're firing you, which it should be if you committed a fraud, (laughs) we're firing you. Less than half of the owners and executives are terminated for fraud. Now, again, that might be the case that, like we were saying for Oki, where they're like going, "Okay, you caught me. How about you just take all that money out of my, you know, out of my right. uh, equity in the firm and just and I and I, you know, maybe I'm not the managing partner anymore. Uh, so you know, but then we're cool, right, guys? And maybe maybe that's a real thing. Do you, I mean? Do you think? I mean. I- I don't know. I mean, that's what I mean. That's what I think. I'm so curious about is like how do like these these places of you know these companies where fraud is occurring and there are no consequences, right? Like no consequences, right? And in terms of no consequences, yeah, like the the the, like don't lose their jobs, like don't repay the money, like I just I'm kind of blown away. Like, well, wait a minute, you just like let them get away with it, and they get to keep their like. But but that's what I this is what I have a hard time getting my head around. Is yeah, is that how do you keep someone in in a company after all that? Yeah, well, not just how do you keep them in the company because again, they they even drill down the data a little bit more, and they they state thirteen percent of the owners and executives who perpetrated a fraud, 13% of them received no punishment at all. So right. 45% of them are terminated. So 55% are, are not. not terminated. But then 13% of them, not just are they not terminated, there was zero punishment for the yeah. fraud. It was just like, knock it off, I guess. See you Monday. Yeah, right? And that's... See you Monday. That is unbelievable. Because again... You know what? Thirteen percent. That's about. I want to say that's one in eight. Isn't that about one in eight? About right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One yep. in eight executives who commits fraud at their company are literally off scot free. Yeah. For that. Yeah. Um, which, which is not the case for Patrick Oki. Not the case <laughs> for Patrick Oki. Not at all. <laughs> but then again, what I mean, gosh, I really, I, I wish that I could explain that better of how that could even possibly happen. The only thing, no, I, I have no idea because if there's no internal consequences, they wouldn't have been taken to law enforcement either. And the only explanation that I could give for someone having no consequences whatsoever for committing fraud is if it's all just the company is deathly afraid of the bad PR 
that would yeah. come out of it. And it's like, we are going to pretend like this never happened because all of us would lose our retirement account if the, if the press caught wind of this or something like that. Yeah. Do you, can you think of any other justification for it besides that? I mean, that seems to be... That's that's where my mind goes immediately. Mm-hmm. I guess the, the that, only other thing that comes to my mind is okay. So the the owner commits the fraud, and he doesn't get punished by the board because he has naked pictures of all the board members, and he right. can dis, he can put them out on the internet with a click of a button. So right. like you know what you're good. How about you? How about you? Here's a raise stick stay in right there, i mean it's it's not it's it's not that far-fetched in that you know especially in small businesses right that, that Where, the owners have naked pictures of each other yeah i mean that it, well some kind of compromising information oh uh, yeah, uh, yeah okay yeah i mean no it you're, to, just you're being to you're be, being for real it doesn't have to be nudes it can okay. be okay it can be all right it could be an affair it could be um, okay it could be other bad behavior huh. you know, that well, is, is it, maybe it's on a personal level rather than on, huh. a, on a fraudulent level. But yeah, right. I mean, I, I, I feel like, hmm. I feel like, yeah, that that's not outside the realm of possibility in my mind. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah, and I guess I could say, cause the other thing with the ACFE, they're not just talking embezzlement and that's one of the things that they yeah. don't disaggregate the data down in terms of how many of those were financial statement fraud, how many of those were, because a lot of the justification for things like financial statement fraud is it's like, I was doing it for the good of the company. I was trying, we had to meet our <laughs> yeah. numbers or else right. our stock price would, would plummet. So right. I was, I was doing this for the team and then they might've gone, he was doing it for the team. So, you know what? <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, not cool, but we're going to keep him because loyalty, which we, again, weird and backwards, but yeah, I guess I could understand that. We'll, we'll get into loyalty in another podcast. Not on this one. Not on this one. Patrick Oakey, you go to jail. <laughs> All right, everybody, that's it for this episode of Oh My Fraud. And remember, if you commit a crime, do it in Hawaii because you'll be in prison, but you'll be in prison in Hawaii. And also remember for your Hawaiian court appearance to wear your good Hawaiian shirt. Caleb, if people want to find you out there in the internet, where, where can they go? I'm on Twitter at CNewquist, and you can find me on LinkedIn at Caleb Newquist. Greg, where are you on the internet? Uh, the best places to find me also on Twitter at Greg Kite, or like you said, uh, LinkedIn, just put in my name, Greg Kite CPA. You'll find me there. Don't put in Greg Kite Erstwhile CPA, just Greg Kite CPA. That's all all you got to do. Current. Or, the other thing is uh, I got a, uh, I got some cartoons that I have out there on the internet. Those are on Instagram at Exposure Drafts. Oh, My Fraud is written by me, Caleb Newquist, and Greg Kite. Our producer is Blake Oliver. Music supervision, sound design, editing, and mixing by Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review or share it with a friend. And be sure to subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Join us next time for more avarice swindlers and scams from stories that will make you say, Aloha, fraud! (laughs) Oh, my fraud.